Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. CCM is one church that meets every Sunday in various locations across Manchester. For more information about who we are or about our Sunday meetings, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. I'm convinced and increasingly becoming convinced that what the world needs is Christians who are radical disciples of Jesus. And disciples of Jesus means followers of Jesus. It's just a, a fancy word. Radical followers of Jesus. Um, John Stott, who is one of the most influential Bible teachers of the 20th century, said this about what it means to follow Jesus, or what it should look like to follow Jesus. He says that Jesus does not call us to a sloppy half-heartedness, but to a vigorous, absolute commitment. He calls us to make him our Lord. It's quite a challenging statement, isn't it? A nice opener to get us, kick us off this morning. Um, but I think it's true. And what John Stott is really summing up is what Jesus has already said and is recorded in Mark chapter 8, when Jesus said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. It means Jesus, following Jesus and the gospel first, everything else subordinate to that goal. And as we're, we're going back into our series on the book of Acts, we had a bit of a break over the summer, and we're going to pick up the story of Paul and Silas, who are two people who I think show us exactly what vigorous, absolute commitment to following Jesus and being a disciple looks like. And my aim this morning is to uh, inspire us, encourage us, challenge us maybe, that we need to have this approach in our lives too. Uh, it's quite a long passage. I'm going to skip over little bits and summarize. I'm going to read bits and then kind of jump in and explain what's going on. It was starting in uh, chapter 15 of Acts. Uh, I'm not going to read from that. The, the bit in chapter 15 is basically Paul and Barnabas have an argument. Paul manages to fall out with a man whose nickname is the Son of Encouragement, which is quite an achievement. And it's all about this guy called John Mark. John Mark's a guy who appears in the New Testament periodically. And he abandoned him in a previous mission. We don't know why, but we know that Paul and Barnabas disagreed about whether John Mark should travel with them. Barnabas says yes, Paul says no. And their disagreement is so strong, they split. And Paul goes with Silas in one direction, and Barnabas goes with John Mark in another. Um, John Mark uh, actually does eventually end up with Peter and writes the Gospel of Mark, which is Peter's account of Jesus' life. And it's just as a side, in case you're wondering if this resolves itself, um, they actually reconcile Paul and John Mark. Paul, uh, in his letter to Timothy, his secretary Timothy requests that John Mark come to visit him um, because he wants to see him. So presumably they're reconciled. Um, then we go to chapter 16 of the book of Acts, and Paul meets Timothy, who of course becomes a very important uh, person in the New Testament. He's the subject of two letters that are written to him, and he's a partner of uh, Paul in sharing the gospel. We're going to pick it up at verse 6, which will come up on the screen. Paul and his companions travelled throughout the region of Phrygia, are you going to have to Phrygia, thank you, and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed by Mysia and went down to Trous. 
During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Now, the plan initially that Paul had with Silas was to revisit his steps. He's already on one great missionary journey. It'll come up on the screen now, the map. Um, and you can see where Paul kind of traveled around. It's in Asia. It's kind of to the east. Um, and that's the steps that he took. The plan was to revisit those steps and see the churches again and encourage them. But instead, what happens is we have this enormously pivotal moment in the book of Acts and in the history of the church. Um, we doesn't, Luke's narrative is, is really interesting. He doesn't explain how they were prevented from getting there. He just says it happened. So we can only speculate, and I'm not going to. Instead, uh, Paul gets this vision of a man from Macedonia. Macedonia is Greece, so northern Greece is where they're going to head to. And what happens instead of revisiting the first missionary journey is Paul starts now his second missionary journey, and that will come up now. And you can see it's longer, bigger, and westward, and it reaches all the way up to Greece. You can see at the top left there, and down to Athens and back to Jerusalem. So verse 11, from Trous we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace, and the next day we went on to Neapolis. From there we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony and the leading city of the district of Macedonia, and we stayed there for several days. So Philippi is a, a very important city, a, a colony of Rome in Greece. It's on the highway between Rome and the eastern provinces, so lots of people are going through Philippi all the time. It's likely to be very multicultural and multi-ethnic. Um, and the people who live in uh, Philippi would have happily seen themselves as Roman citizens. Verse 13. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gates to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to some of the women who gathered there. So there's no synagogue in Philippi. Normally, they would head for the synagogue. Instead, they go into the river to find people. So there's very few Jewish people in Philippi. This is a very Gentile place. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira called Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshipper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she came, when she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. So Lydia is the first important character that we meet. She's very wealthy. Dealing in purple cloth means that she is selling the most expensive garments to some of the richest people in the empire. She's well connected to lots of people who are very rich in the city of Philippi, and presumably from all over, traveling in, traveling through to get the purple cloth. It's a luxurious item. And she was a worshiper of a god, it says here. So she was one of the few Jews that lived in Philippi. Verse 16. Once we were going to the place of prayer where we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the Spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And at that moment, the Spirit left her. Again, Luke's narrative is, is fantastic. He was so annoyed 
that this spirit was taunting them, that he just cast it out in the name of Jesus. Fantastic. Verse 19. When her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews and are throwing our city into uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. A wholly false, made-up, trumped-up charge. It's not what they're doing at all. But it's a reminder, if ever we needed, that doing the right thing will often get opposition. All they've done is free this person from uh, spiritual slavery. And rather than saying, oh, thank you, they are cross and they are making up charges against Paul and Silas. Verse 22. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. These are metal rods. This is bone-breaking stuff here. After they'd been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell, and he fastened their feet with stocks. Stocks were these kind of wooden devices that you put your feet in, and they would splay your legs apart. It's a torture device. Verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Would that be, I mean, it's an incredible, isn't it? Like, just think about what's happened to them, and their response is to be praying and singing hymns to God. We'll come back to that later. Verse 26, suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And all at once, the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. Not your normal earthquake, is it? A normal earthquake flattens the building. This is a move of God, releasing the prisoners from their chains. The jailer woke up. and When he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We are all here. So if anyone escaped on your watch, you were killed. That's why the jailer's going to kill himself, because he would rather do that than be killed. The jailer, verse 29, the jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in the house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he'd come to believe in God, he and his whole household. And the two amazing turnarounds in the jailer's life, isn't it? He's gone from being ready to kill himself to being baptized. He's gone from torturing Paul and Silas to washing their wounds in hours. And then chapter 16 ends with Paul and Silas being released from prison. The magistrates realize they have done something very terrible in treating a Roman citizen like this. It's against the law to beat them in public and against the law to torture them without trial. And they go back to the church in Philippi to encourage them. So that's a lot of ground that we've covered, a lot. It started with a plan to go back to Asia with Paul and Barnabas. And it ends with Paul on beginning his second missionary journey in completely the different direction. And we see three conversions, a public beating, imprisonment, and release. And none of this is planned. None of this is planned at all, not by Paul anyway. But what we see here, what we've seen described here in Philippi, 
is the first church planted in Europe. We're here today because Paul went to Philippi and planted this church. So we're going to look at the three people in this story and see how the gospel changed them. And we're going to marvel at how incredible the gospel is and then reflect on how it ought to impact our lives as well. So the, the chapter we've just been in, we have three different people, three different conversion stories. First of all, Lydia. Lydia's religious. She's maybe a spiritual seeker of some kind. She's someone who had a lot materially, a lot. I would have said she would have been very wealthy. She's likely to be a widow. The fact that she's described as a homeowner, it, it means in antiquity that she's probably a widow, because otherwise it would have been the male who is described as a homeowner. She has a household and a house big enough to host a church. And yet, Paul talks to her. We don't know what he says, but presumably he says something similar to what he had said to all the other Jewish people he'd met in the previous chapters of Acts. And he would have explained how Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, and he is the Messiah, and her heart is open, and she not only becomes a follower, but then she's like, have your church in my house. Then there's a slave girl who's not named, but she's demonized. She is totally exploited and abused. It's, it's, it's tragic, although not uncommon, because the modern equivalent of this, I'm trying to think, what would this look like today? It would, I, I would guess it's someone who'd been human trafficked, sold into prostitution, and was plied with drugs by their pimp. It's probably the equivalent. So think about that when you think about what this girl's life was like. And yet the power of God comes in and immediately releases her from the power of darkness. And she's freed. It doesn't actually say in the passage that she's converted, but every one I've read, all the kind of stuff I've read around this, they all kind of assume that's what happens to her. And then there's the jailer. He's a, uh, an instrument of the oppressive regime. Um, and he's a brutal man. He puts Paul and Silas in stock so that he was never told to do that. He's just told to watch them. And they're in a, in a cell, bottom, underneath the prison. They're not getting out. <laughs> they're in a lot of pain. They're not moving. He doesn't need to put them in stocks, but he does, probably to ingratiate himself with the magistrates. He sees Paul and Silas as beneath human, right? That's how he treats them that way. And yet, he has this instantaneous change in his heart. He goes from torturing them to washing their wounds and feeding them. In verse 27, he's so afraid he's going to kill himself. And in verse 34, it says he was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God. These are the three first converts in Europe that we know of. It's amazing. There's nothing else on earth. Think about the three people that we've just, like the materially wealthy person, the oppressed person, and the, the jailer, this brutal, kind of savage-like person in, in the way he treats people. Nowhere else on earth, nothing else on earth, no cause, no ideology, no philosophy, nothing that people gather around can bring people like that together and unite them in oneness in heart and mind across all ethnic and racial and class and language divisions that we like to build up around ourselves, the gospel breaks them all down and creates one man in Christ. That's what it does. And there's another amazing aspect to this. I have to, I have to credit Tim Keller for this, because 
this is so this is so good. I couldn't have ever come up with this myself. Um, there was a traditional Jewish prayer. Um, it would have been, it's been recited for thousands of years. It's still recited by some uh, today in some Orthodox communities. And it's recited as part of what's something called the morning blessing. So it's something that you would say first thing in the morning. And it was recited, is recited by the male head of the household. And you'll see why the male head of the household is important in a moment. Um, and it's almost certain that Paul would have at least known about this prayer, probably even prayed it himself before he became a follower of Jesus. And this is the prayer. Thank you, God, that I'm not a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. Um, it's not very PC, is it? There's no way Paul doesn't realize that the, three, the first three converts to his church in Philippi are Lydia, a woman, the girl, a slave, and the jailer, who is a Gentile. And this is what he would have been thinking about, I'm sure, when he wrote to the Galatians, that there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ. This is the gospel. There is nothing else like it that claims freedom to the oppressed, forgiveness to the sinner, and love and acceptance to the marginalized from every single aspect of whatever you can think of. Whoever you can think of, they are included. It's amazing, isn't it? And it's important to reflect on how amazing the gospel is sometimes and, and quite how radical the gospel is. So how does this change us? What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus and his gospel message and to do it radically? Well, Dallas Willard um, has my favorite summary of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. He says that three things. The first is to, to learn to do the things that Jesus explicitly told us to do so. Secondly, to do the activities of life, our normal everyday business, home, school, education, government, whatever it might be, in the character and power of Christ. And then thirdly, exercise the power of the kingdom, the power that lives within us, Christ in his word and spirit to minister good and defeat evil wherever we go. And he goes on to say, as a disciple of Jesus, I am with him by choice and by grace, learning from him how to live in the kingdom of God. That means how I live within the range of God's effective will, with his life flowing through mine. Another important way of putting this is to say that I am learning from Jesus to live my life as he would live my life if he was me. What would Jesus living your life look like if he was in your workplace, in your family? In other words, the call is to become like Jesus and do the things that he did. Not with sloppy half-heartedness, but with vigorous, absolute commitment. So let me ask all of us, myself included, what is our priority? What is it that motivates us? What is the first thing of importance, the greatest importance to us. Well, Paul tells us what his priority was. In Romans 15, he says, I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through leading me in, le through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God 
by what I have said and done. By the power of signs and wonders, through the power of the spirits of God. It's always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known. So for Paul, following Jesus, speaking the words of Jesus, and doing the works of Jesus was his life. And if we're honest, I think, I know I do this, and I'm not alone. We sometimes treat the gospel and following Jesus as something that we just tack on to the edges of our life. C.S. Lewis, who I often like to quote, uh, did this incredible sermon in the, uh, called The Weight of Glory, and this is a very familiar uh, part of it. He says, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. We're like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday by the sea. We are far too easily pleased. We have settled for less than what Jesus offers us when we follow him. And that's why we don't see some of the things that we see in the Bible. Some of the amazing things happening in our lives to the degree that we really would love to see them, right? Jesus came and he proclaimed the kingdom of God. He told us how we ought to live, a new way of living what it means to be a human, following him. And then he demonstrated this kingdom by power. And then he told us to go and make disciples of all nations. And then he says to us in John 14, Very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I've been doing, and they will do even greater things than these, because I am going to the Father. And I don't think he was lying when he said this, because people try and do all sorts of gymnastics to try and say that it isn't what it looks like. But it does. That's exactly what it means. We will do greater things than he did. This is what it means. This is what Dallas Willard means when he says that we live within the range of God's effective will, his life flowing through man. It means that we're empowered to do the things that Jesus did, just as we see Paul and Silas in our passage. And like them, we need to be positioning ourselves in such a way that we're going wherever God is moving to places that are outside of our comfort zone, to places where God's kingdom is advancing, to be wherever we are, witnessing to the grace and goodness of God and demonstrating the power of his kingdom by power and mercy. This is how, said at the beginning, none of what happens to Paul and Silas is planned. And actually, things go wrong for them. They do something good and they end up in prison. This is how they can deal with it. Because they had their plans their ambitions so lightly held that they were willing to give up everything to follow Jesus and have his ambition to proclaim the kingdom as their primary objective. I know that's not how I handle my plans being changed. I know it's not how I handle things not working out for me the way I want them to. Because they had this image and this uh, approach and this change in their mindset, this is why they could sing hymns and pray 
in prison when they've been beaten and tortured and then preach the gospel to the man who's been torturing them and share a meal with him. It's not how I handle suffering. It's not how I act when I've been treated unjustly. It's not how I treat those who wrong me. When there's that snarky comment made about you or you've, there's a lie told about you, our response is not usually to pray and worship and then to preach the gospel to that person. Just this morning in our, in our prayer meeting, uh, we gathered together to pray before the service and, and Katrina was sharing some stories from Armenia and if you don't know, Armenia's been... Um, having some hard times, right? There's been, there's been war there. People have been displaced and been made homeless and the churches there have been heavily affected. And she was sharing stories of God moving in power, saving people and healing people in Armenia. They are in the midst of terrible suffering and yet God is working through them and in them. Paul and Silas had their priorities and motivations so changed, so given were they to being a follower of Jesus so at at the cost of everything, that they would share his grace and do it anywhere, everywhere, stopping at nothing as they went along. Don't you want to be like that? I've been reflecting as I've been preparing this on, on a few things. Firstly, that life never turns out the way you plan it. From the smallest things to the biggest things. Secondly, that we should hold our plans lightly because of this and instead get on board with what God is planning and the advance of his kingdom and his mission. And most importantly, I've been reflecting on the fact that my own faith has become stale and a bit boring. And I suspect I'm not alone in feeling that way, that there are others in this room who feel that way about their faith too. And I'm going to illustrate this with a story and then we'll finish. About 10 years ago, uh, maybe a bit longer than that, Becky and I, uh, in our old church in Manchester, um, we led the student team in the church. And it was great. Um, and the vision that we had was to build a thriving student community um, in Manchester. And there's a lot, it's the biggest university campus in Europe. It was when we were uh, involved in it. And a big part of the strategy to deliver this uh, in, for me was to have a, a Sunday evening service in Fallowfield, which is the heart of studentdom in the city. And we finally got it greenlit. We finally started this thing in September 2014. We met together, and it started really, really well, and it looked like God was with us. I, I looked for a venue. I went all around Fallowfield, and I wandered into Starbucks and said, oh, can I speak to the manager? And the manager said, I'm the manager. And I said, I'm looking for a place to do a church meeting. And he said, have this place for free. I'll provide staff, just pay for the coffee. Great, fantastic, a man of favor. And he did, every Sunday we were there, when they closed, he kept it open, put staff on, and we did church in a coffee shop, it was ace. Uh, we packed up the venue, we did a couple of events there, we did an open mic night, we did a carol service, we had, the place was teeming, we had loads of visitors, it was fantastic. By May 2015, uh, I think it was May, I turned up one evening to set up and the only other person who was there, other than the barista, was the worship leader. We did not go ahead that night, and we never met again, because the church closed us down. By July, we were no longer leading the student team. 
by November we were at CCM. I was gutted, devastated. To me, this was a failure. And in human terms, it is a failure, right? You start something, it doesn't work out. It even had, we even had a broken relationships as part of this, like a bit like Paul and Silas, uh, Paul and Barnabas. It took me a while to get over the disappointment of, of this thing not working out. But 10 years later, I look back and I don't regret it. Not a bit. Not because of some trite reason like, oh, I grow so much, I learn so much about myself. And that's true, but that's not the reason we do stuff, right? It's not the point. The reason why I don't regret it was because that was a time when I stepped out of my comfort zone big time. More than ever before in my entire walk with Jesus, nearly 20 years now, I was doing the stuff. I've no idea what came of it, the fruit that came of it, the people that came into our building, the visitors that came through the door, most of those people I'll never see again, the homeless guy who would turn up and we'd give food and drink to and heckled through the service. I've no idea what happened to him. But they heard the gospel. And it's not my responsibility how they respond. It's just my responsibility to be a disciple and do the stuff that Jesus did wherever it takes me. Even if it's hard, and it was really hard. And even if it doesn't turn out how you plan it, because this didn't. In my head, I'd still be doing this. Ten years ago, I, was, I would still be doing that. That's where I was at in 2014. But it's okay. We need to make a vigorous, absolute commitment to doing whatever Jesus wants us to do wherever we are and be prepared to follow him wherever it leads us. And I have been Tom, who helps, Tom O'Toole, who kind of helps um, give feedback to preachers when they're preaching. He says, You've got to live the sermon, right? It's got to impact you in the heart before you can share it. And I can honestly tell you, this has convicted me. <laughs> like, completely stirred and convicted me when I'm preparing this and seeing this stuff and writing this stuff down and thinking, man, I don't live like this. This isn't me. But I want it to be. I'm tired of being bored. I'm tired of not seeing this stuff working through me. I'm tired of settling for the comfortable, easy life. I'm tired of not being opposed spiritually anymore because there is nothing to oppose. So what I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to, I'm going to respond. And I'm going to invite other people to respond too, to the call to be radical followers of Jesus to shake off the apathy, to shake off um, where we have fallen asleep, to reawaken the dreams that we have had for how we're going to do stuff for God, to respond to the call of God to do the stuff that he wants us to do wherever we are, to fan into flame the gift that he's given us, to preach the gospel to those who don't know it, to move in power because we have this Holy Spirit working in us and helping us to be full of wonder for the faith that we have, just awe for the faith that we have received and the gift that we have from Jesus. That's the kind of people that God wants to see in his church. I'm convinced of it. The only way the city of Manchester will see a revival 
is through radical disciples doing this stuff. It's been fantastic that this site has grown in the last couple of years. I, but most people have come from other churches. It's a net neutral. And we can't sit here and be smug that we're growing when we're growing through church transfers. We've got to get out and do the stuff. Who's with me? Yeah. 